Acts chapter 10, 34 through 48. And would you stand as I read? Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, who is worthy for these things? None of us here are worthy of your grace in Christ. None of us are worthy to hear your word, much less preach your word. But God, this is all of grace. And so acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging our limitation, frailty, limited sight, and acknowledging our sin, we come as beggars. We come as those who are impoverished, the poor in spirit. But Lord Jesus, you have promised a blessing for those who are poor in spirit. So Lord, would we know our poverty that we might now receive your riches in Christ and in the spirit? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, even now this morning, would you speak? God of glory, speak. Our Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
We're continuing to walk out the outline of Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8, that you will receive power to be my witnesses. Jesus tells his uh, disciples before he ascends, you'll receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And what we see, as we've seen along the way through the, the book of Acts, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ bridges bridges gaps or bridges divides between people. It goes from Jerusalem to Judea. It goes from the Jews to the Samaritans in chapter 8. It even goes from the, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Christians there with Philip. It goes to the Ethiopian eunuch. It goes to Africa. But the big move, the big seismic shift that's happening in Acts 10 and 11 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes from Jews and Samaritans who are sort of like half Jew, if you will, uh, and it goes to full-on Gentiles. That there is a great movement here as the gospel of Christ spreads to the nations that it goes now to Gentiles. It goes to non-Jewish people. It goes to non-Jewish people, the first of whom is Cornelius. And if you've been reading or you have read the book of Acts, you know Cornelius is a military man. He's a part of the Roman army, uh, and he's in charge of people, but he's a full-on Gentile. He's described as a God-fearer in the sense that he's a religious man who's genuinely looking for the things of God, but he's not Jewish. And so this is a seismic shift. And it's so seismic that by the very next chapter, people are getting upset with Peter, so much so that he has to go and recount all of this to them. He has to go and recount all of this to people who are uh, curious about how the gospel of Jesus has gone to these Gentiles, much even more so these Gentiles who are part of the, our Roman overlords, those who are oppressing the Jewish people. He's a part of that group. And yet the gospel comes in power. If you have been, not, and, and no pressure, I mean, there's a lot of pressure, all the guilt I have to you. Uh, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, uh, we've been doing Blaney Baptist Equip or Blaney Equip. I don't really have a good catchy title for it. I'm sorry, I'm not that guy. Uh, but we've been walking through what it means, what is the gospel, how, and, and if I were to ask you, what, what is the gospel, and you don't have to give me the whole spiel right now, this, this part's rhetorical, Okay. Some of you can fire off what we've been doing on Wednesday nights, and I'm praise God. Uh, but what is the gospel? What is the good news of God? And then how do we share it with other people? Because you can't share what you don't know, and you can't obey what you don't know, and you can't live out what you don't know. And so if you, you don't know the gospel, you can't really believe the gospel, and if you don't believe the gospel, you can't obey it or share it with other people. Now, I'm not saying if you can't give a perfect outline of the gospel, you're not a Christian. Um, but it will do you great edification for your spiritual life to be able to say, here is the good news of Jesus. And what was interesting as I was reading this and studying this, and this has been a very uh, just rough week in our house. I'm not going to lie. Everybody has been sick. I've been stuck at the house. With every, Sarah Beth, is, she can't take days off. So I've been at the house uh, most days with all three kids, uh, four and under. And... Uh, with which they are tremendous blessings, but they are nerve wracking blessings. And then they are, uh, especially when they're sick, you know, so it's been, um, 
So Evelyn is doing well. The boys have gone from what began at the beginning of the week as hand, foot, mouth. Now have they have like croup. Uh, and so they're home with Sarah Beth. So y'all pray for them and they're going to, they're going to, but now they're on prednisone. And so they're just like Tasmanian, they're already Tasmanian devils, but you just ramp that up. Uh, so it's, it's something at our house right now. So anyways, uh, but I've been during nap time and like at and like four o'clock in the morning and then at 10 o'clock at night, this is when I've been reading this week. And so, uh, but what struck me is that as Peter is, has been, has listened to the summons of God. He is, he's summoned to Cornelius. Cornelius is prompted to look after, to seek after Peter. I would encourage you to go read through the narrative of chapter 10. But now Peter has come to Cornelius and his household, and he's there to share the gospel. They're, they're assembled. <clears throat> Cornelius is so expectant and excited about what they're going to hear. He's assembled his family. He's assembled all of these people in his house. And they're saying, we're here to hear... We're here to hear whatever God has for you, uh, has given you to speak to us. There's such an expectancy for the gospel, an expectancy for the word. Would we be so hungry uh, for the word of God? And Peter says, all right, I'm going to give it to you. This is where we are. This is the part I read. Where Peter basically shares the gospel with Cornelius and his household. And what struck me is that it's the same. Not, this is not intentional on my part. But it's basically the same outline as, as I was sharing on Wednesday nights about how do we describe the gospel. Uh, I've, I've been saying here are four co- co- uh, coat hooks, right? Four coat hooks for you to understand the gospel. Four, four um, groups of ideas, four truths, four, four things. Are you ready? God, humanity, Christ, response. If you want to describe the gospel to someone, you begin with God. We talk about ourselves, what the, how we were created, how we were broken, what God is doing for us in Jesus. And then how do you respond to that news? So I'm going to walk through some those headings in this text. And then I'm going to give you, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, uh, three applications at the end. Okay? It's the goals that we have before us. All right. Um, before we get there, though, Peter is saying, I, I most certainly now know that God shows no partiality. Uh, God shows no partiality because he is the God of all. He is the God of all peoples. Uh, and he has a divine purpose in making his church out of all different sorts of people. The Christianity is not just a Jewish religion uh, and is growing out of that here in Acts chapter 10. But by the end of the book, we know that the the church is made up of a multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so that the exclusivity of God means an exclusive gospel universally proclaimed. The exclusivity of God, that God alone is God. He alone, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the only one true living God. All other conceptions, all of the other ideas about God among the religions of the world are folly. This is the only one. If that offends, then I'm welcome to the party. That this exclusive nature of God means that there's only one gospel. And the one gospel means, but it must be proclaimed to all the peoples. One God, one gospel, universally proclaimed, universally shared. The gospel must go to the nations, right? Acts 1.8. 
You will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They are giving witness to what God has done in Jesus. Okay? So the gospel is of center, central importance because it is center to what God is doing in the world. So if we were to begin with God, which is where Peter begins. He begins with God that he, every man who fears him does what is right is welcome to him. This does not mean that people who simply believe anything are welcome before God. Uh, it doesn't just mean if you're a religious person or if you're a good person or if, you just, if you're sincere in your beliefs, you will make it to glory. You'll make it to heaven. If that were the case, this chapter would end right there. There would be no necessity for Peter to actually share the gospel. To actually tell them this is what God has done. And to actually see the power of the Holy Spirit bringing out repentance and faith in Cornelius and his household. If it were simply, you just believe what you believe and believe it wholeheartedly. But too often that's the gospel that's shared around. Is that as long as you're sincere in your beliefs, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus or if you believe in some form of uh, uh, Judaism or some form of Buddhism or some form of Hinduism or some form of Islam or New Age stuff. Or if you simply uh, animistic Shinto Eastern religion, Taoism, fill in the blank, as long as you're sincere or maybe you've concocted your own thing. Like L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology, or you've just made your own idea and you just, you've just sort of cobbled together all of these philosophies and religions, and you have your own little, this is my package. Or maybe you've bought into, you know, Star Wars and you're into the Force, right? That, uh, I don't know. I don't know what you're into, but it, that is not sufficient because none of those things offer you what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers you. And we're going to talk about the precarious predicament of humanity, the precarious predicament of every single person in a moment. So it begins with God. Verse 38 gives us, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Where is the Trinity, Jacob? Here is the Trinity church. You have Jesus of Nazareth. You have God who is... This is God the Father anointing God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. That in the work of the gospel, the triune God is active. The Father's purposes are being achieved by the Son, who then his, what he has achieved is then applied to those who will trust in the name of Christ by the Spirit. The Father's purposes, the Father's plan is accomplished by Jesus and it is applied by the Holy Spirit. The triune God is the one who does the gospel because the gospel is something that you don't do. It is something that God has done, is doing. Let's say that again. The gospel is not something you do. It is something that God has done. It's the benefits of Christ applied to you by the Holy Spirit. So God is the one who welcomes these people in um, Verse 34, he, is, he raises Jesus from the dead in verse 40. He chooses witnesses in verse 41. And he is the one who appoints Christ as judge in verse 42. But it is the triune God. This is not simply some amorphous idea, like some just God, right? You say, who is God? He's this. 
No, the God described here is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is how God is all the time and has always been and will always be. One God and three persons. God does not show up as Trinity. He does not manifest himself as Trinity. He's not in one sense manifesting himself as Father. And then five minutes later, he's a chameleon and manifests himself as Son. And then 15 minutes later, he manifests himself as the Spirit. That's modalism and that's a heresy. God is not made up of parts. He is not one-third Father, one-third Son, one-third Holy Spirit. That's partialism. That's a heresy. I didn't, I'm not the one calling it a heresy. The church has called it heresy for 2,000 years. Okay. And we can, we can go on, right? We can go on with these, how we, how we make the Trinity like ourselves. There's one substance, there's three persons, and God has always enjoyed the fellowship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. My point this morning is not to give you a rational explanation for the mystery of the Holy Trinity. There are books larger than this pulpit, probably, uh, that are devoted to that. And maybe someday we'll sort of give an extended teaching. But the Christian position uh, revealed in Holy Scripture, testified in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedon Formulation, in uh, the Athanasian Creed, the creeds of the early church affirmed throughout the history of the church is that there's one God, one substance, three persons, always. He did not begin to be three persons at creation, and he will not one day cease to be three persons, but he is singular three persons. So this triune God is involved. The Father purposes, the Son achieves, the Holy Spirit applies. Uh, John Owen, who is one of the great Puritan theologians, and he's also a member of our church, but it's a different John Owen. He's not here. They they have a new baby. Uh, but John Owen wrote this of, the, of this, of what God is doing in the gospel. For when God designed the great and glorious work of recovering fallen man and the saving of sinners to the praise of the glory of his grace, he appointed in his infinite wisdom two great means thereof. The one was the giving of his son for them, and the other was the giving of his spirit unto them. And hereby was way made for the manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity, which is the utmost end of all the works of God. So that God intends to reconcile fallen people, and we're going to talk about that in just a second, but people who are at at odds with Him, at distance with Him, He means to reconcile people, unworthy sinners who have rebelled against Him. He reconciles them by giving. This is grace, y'all. He's giving His Son, which we talk a lot about in the church, but He's also giving the Spirit unto them that the way that God remedies our failures isn't lashing us with the law and telling us, you need to do this and you need to do that. No, He says, look at what I have done in My Son and here is My Spirit so that you can believe and follow Me. He remedies us, He reconciles us by giving To the glory of His grace. That is grace. It is giving of the great treasures of God in the Holy Trinity. Giving of the great treasures of God to rebellious, wicked people like us. But also notice, He reconciles, He does the work of the Gospel by giving of the Son, giving of the Spirit 
to demonstrate or show or manifest his glory, which Owen says is the utmost end of all the works of God. That ultimately creation is about demonstrating the glory of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Ultimately redemption is about demonstrating the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And ultimately glory in the new heavens and the new earth will fully, finally manifest the the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the gospel begins and ends about with God because it's about God. Creation is about God. Redemption is about God. The church is about God. You are about God. You might not know it. You might not accept it. You might rebel against that truth. But you are not your own and it's not about you. Even you trusting in the Lord Jesus and striving to be obedient to him. That's to demonstrate the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not to showcase your goodness. So we begin with God. God who in his character. God as creator. God in his nature. God in his character. We see humanity also in verse 38. They are oppressed by the devil. Verse 42, they're accountable to judgment. Verse 43, in need of forgiveness. And back in verse 36, in need of peace with God. So that fallen humanity, humanity, let me back up one step. Humanity made in the image of God, made for relationship with God, is made good. Only component, only piece of creation that's said to bear the image of God. The angels cannot even lay claim to that, dear ones. You're made in God's image. And creation was good and it became very good when humans got on the scene. So that great position of being image bearers of God makes the fall even more egregious. It helps us understand the depth of sin when we see the height of God's purpose in creation. He made us for himself to be little mirrors to reflect back his goodness and his grace and his glory. And yet what happens in the fall is that all of those mirrors, all of our souls, all of our beings are corrupted. They're turned from God. They're turned toward ourselves. They're smudged and muddied. The image is not gone, but it is distorted. An image that once shone clearly as though from a perfect mirror now shines as though it were one of those funhouse mirrors that makes you look like you're eight feet tall or three inches tall or weigh a lot more than you do or weigh a lot less than you do. The mirror is corrupted, oppressed by the devil. We're in shackles. We talked a lot about this last week, but we're bound up in sin. And humanity outside of the grace of God is in dire need. We're in dire need because we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, we, have, we are incurring upon us, we are welcoming upon us the wrath of God. That we are accountable to judgment in verse 42. That we will be judged, the living and the dead. There will come a day when you will have to give an account for everything you have done, everything you have thought, everything you have said. And part of why we're doing what we're doing, and I'm doing what I'm doing, is that you might be ready for that day. Because there's only one plea that you may have before that great judge. And it cannot be, God, I was really sincere about what I believed. 
It cannot be, God, my, my tally marks outweigh, my tally marks of good outweigh my tally marks of bad. So I live my life in, my, in the, the moral black rather than in the red. You know, you're like, hey, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I cussed the other day, but I also did these, good, these three good things, and therefore it's going to outweigh that one bad thing. Well, dear ones, in the, under the holiness and the holy economy of God, that one failure is an ultimate failure. And so we are in need of redemption. We're in need of forgiveness. We're in need of a plea on the day of judgment, and it is only Christ and His blood. So we've seen God, we've seen humanity made in the image of God, yet fallen and rebelling against Him, and then we have the offer of Jesus. And really, it's a, it's a summons to Jesus given to Cornelius and his household, but it begins with Jesus is Lord. Verse 36. And now consider for a moment the context. This is not a Jewish household. This is the household of a Roman soldier who often probably had to say or was at least surrounded by people who would say Caesar is Lord rather than Jesus is Lord. The confession, the proclamation of the lordship of Jesus had dire political implications. It's a statement that Caesar does not rule. But to begin with Christ, he is Lord of all. He's not Lord of the Jews. He's not Lord of Jerusalem. He's not Lord of Judea. He's not Lord of this land strip between Asia, Africa, and Europe. He is Lord of all. And he has not laid down that title. And he never will lay down that title. When he shows up in Revelation chapter 19, and he's got it printed on his thigh and on his clothes, that he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and that every lord, every king, every congress, every president, every parliamentary official, prime minister, fill in the gap, will be held accountable to him, as will each one of us. He is Lord of all. And if you're going to have the gospel of his salvation, you must have him as reigning Lord of your life. If you consistently buck and refuse the reign of the Lord of Lords, then you cannot claim to accept his benefits. Do you understand what I'm saying? Too often people think, I'm going to run for shelter under the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood we sing, as we ought to sing. But if nothing but the blood does not lead me to say no other Lord but Jesus. No other allegiance higher than Him. No other family allegiance. No other church allegiance. No other political allegiance. Nothing else above Jesus. If the nothing but the blood does not bring forth that confession, you need to come back to nothing but the blood. Because if you're going to have the blood of Christ, you are going to have Christ as Lord. Jesus is anointed in verse 38 to do good and to deliver. He dies a substitutionary death in verse 39. He is raised by God the Father in verse 40. He appears to people in verses 40 40 and 41. And he sits as judge of the living and the dead. He will come back, as the Apostles' Creed says, as the judge of the living and the dead. But he also gives forgiveness 
in verse 43. That through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Only in Jesus is there forgiving of sins. Only in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would you trust him? Would you bend the knee to Jesus as Lord and say, Lord, save me. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I've been bound up in sin, oppressed by Satan in need of forgiveness. Would you come and rescue me? So God, humanity, Christ, and I've given you part of the response. The response here is really ultimately, finally, it ends up with baptism for Cornelius and all those who are there who received the Holy Spirit. But notice the hints of what led up to baptism. The baptism of John in verse 37 is a baptism of repentance. Verse 43, which I just referenced, is mentioning faith. That the response to God, our condition as people, and what He offers us in Jesus, the response that is called for is one of repentance, leaving sin behind, and trusting in Jesus. We must repent and believe. And if you're not ready to repent and leave your sins behind, don't flee from Jesus. Just ask for His help. If right now you love your sin more than you love Jesus, go to God and tell Him that. Yes, that's highly offensive in, to, to the Holy God. But He already knows your heart. Say, God, this is the reality of me. I love this more than Jesus. And I don't want to give this up. But you're here. And you're hearing this. And dear ones, this is an embodiment of the grace of God toward you. That we would have the word of God before us being opened before us. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. Ask for his help if you refuse to turn. But be wary of his judgment. Be wary that you are accountable to the God who has made you. And the God who shed his blood and his son on the cross. But notice that Cornelius and his family and those who have gathered as they, they repent and believe, it's, it's, it's hinted at at least. But notice who shows up before they repent and believe and are baptized. Who shows up? Holy Spirit. That the, the initiator... Peter is preaching. Peter is sharing. He's proclaiming to the gospel to them. God, humanity, Christ, response. And Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit doesn't always show up like this. There's a significant move that's happening here from the gospel being almost exclusively Jews to being now Gentiles. There's a, there's a move happening in the, in the economy of salvation. The Holy Spirit doesn't always show up like this. But the Holy Spirit always shows up if there's going to be repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are not something that are derived from fleshly humanity. They are spiritually derived. They're, we need the move of the Holy Spirit to cause these things to blossom. 
And because of this, because of the movement of God bringing life to the proclamation of the gospel, they are baptized. And dear ones, this is, baptism is where the public profession of faith happens. Everything else we do is just a tool in that direction. So if you're going to come to Jesus, you you don't have to stop here first. You don't have to come down here first. Right? This is a function. It's a tool. When we invite you up for a response at the end, there's, there's nothing that is mandated in Scripture for you to show up right then. But Jesus does say, be baptized. The Scriptures say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The baptism is not a, whole, a, a, a hollow act, but is one filled with grace as God's people take the step of obeying Jesus and making their faith public by being baptized in his name. So, God, humanity, Christ, response. Three points of application. Very quickly, this is a gospel that you must believe. Belief is entailed with repentance and faith. You have to believe. This is who God is. This is who you are. This is what he has done in Jesus. Secondly, it's a gospel of the Lord to obey. Over and over again in the New Testament, we're told to obey the gospel. To believe upon the gospel and then to walk as, walk worthy of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 that you are called to obey. That maybe for some of you, you've been languishing at this point between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. And maybe today's the day you need to finally and fully submit to Christ as Lord. And saying, I will obey. Wherever He leads, I'll go. And for others, you need to believe this for the first time today. You need to obey Jesus and say, I will trust you. But finally, this is a gospel to share. Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius and his household. And all of them got saved. All of them received the Holy Spirit, were baptized, and were brought into the family of God. But it happened because they heard. It happened Because they heard. Paul, I'll close here. Paul, when he describes what he calls the great mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed or preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In order for Jesus to be believed on in the world, he must be proclaimed among the nations. Going back to the beginning, people can never believe in a gospel they have never heard. And they will never hear if no one tells them. Richard Sibb says of this text in 1 Timothy that faith is the issue and fruit of preaching. Faith is the issue, it issues, it flows from, and is the fruit 
of preaching, not just this sort of preaching, but wherever the gospel of God is taken up on the lips of his people, the Holy Spirit is there to give new life. So this is a gospel for you to share. It's not just for me to share. It's for you to share. All of us have somewhere to be. Either you need to believe this gospel for the first time. Maybe you need to obey Jesus as Lord. Or you've got people you need to share this gospel with. You need to bring them to the throne of God. And you need to seek for opportunities to say, this is who God is. This is what he has done in Jesus for us. So as we sing, consider how is the Lord telling you to respond? You can't stay the same. How is he telling you to respond? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that Holy Spirit, you would come now and accompany your word with power. That you would cause your word to land in fertile soil that it might bear fruit for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.